0: Hello, my name is Gary Todoroff, your guide to this series of recorded teachings on the subject, purpose, and vision. In this first cassette, you'll be meeting your teacher, Jim Durkin, and learning the importance of purpose and vision for your own life. Now, what we're dealing about is the word purpose. And that word purpose is an all-encompassing word we're gonna be specifically dealing about the purpose of God what purpose does God have for your life and for what reason did God bring the universe into being why did he create man why did he do anything at all that he did there had to be behind it a purpose we will see as we proceed in this study that. God is purposeful, and everything he does has a purpose from within his own heart. He counsels with himself, and he creates according to that purpose. Because he is a God of purpose, he therefore creates a creation which is purposeful. Everything that he makes is moving toward some ordained or preordained thing which God has determined before, that God has a purpose for everything that he's created, and he has placed an intelligence within it that moves it with certainty toward the goal from which it's been created. He makes an apple tree, and it moves with certainty from the time it's a seed that's planted, falls in the ground, and dies, and then it brings forth. First the shoot, and then the tree, and finally the fruit. And that's the purpose for which it was created, that it should glorify God, feed man, that it should be a joy to behold. Those things are obvious. He creates animals to people the earth, even the insects that are made. The more we study them, then we marvel at the remarkable balance that is in nature itself, that each thing keeping the other thing in balance so that our ecology is right. Now God created man also with a purpose and for a purpose. And here we are saying, well, here I am. I've been saved. I know Jesus. Now, what is God's purpose for me? All right. now, before I can define what that purpose is, we want to look at some other different aspects to this idea of purpose. First of all, is purpose essential to our life? Is it not enough for us merely to be saved? Say, well, we're just here. We'll live good lives and someday we'll go to heaven. And I tell you that without a purpose, and without the right purpose, there is no possibility of leading any kind of a productive life at all. You just simply drift from place to place without any goal or any direction, whatever. Now, without it, there can be no way that the human mind can even conceive of a direction. For instance, if I decide that I simply want to go to some city, but I don't state what the city is, I just want to go to some city, but in my mind there's no idea what the city is, I would never know if I had gotten there. I might go to many cities, but never be sure I was there. But the minute I say I wish to go to San Francisco, or to London, England, or to Tokyo, Japan, The minute I say that, and that becomes a purposeful direction, everything else begins to line up. I will order steamship tickets or airline tickets that will get me to that city. I now know where I'm going. Further than this, because I have a purpose, I have a way of checking myself along the destination. If I find that I should be going east, but I see that I'm going west, I say, wait, this is not right, and I'm able to turn around and head back because I have a purpose. And that gives me a sense of direction. Now, let's recap. If there is no purpose, then there is no sense of direction. And no sense of direction, we have no way of checking whether we're anywhere near our goal or not. Now, God has a purpose for our lives. All right, what is that purpose? Well, we'll study it a little bit later. But I want you to begin... Asking yourself, does God have a purpose for me? And I tell you that he does. Then we ought to ask ourselves, then, oh, Lord, what is your purpose for me? And I tell you that that's the first step to knowing what the purpose is, that your heart has to be open and say, Lord, I want to know your purpose for my life. Now, I add one other thing here, that unless a man has some purpose, he cannot even live as a human. See, purpose is so important to life, that without it, a man would surely die. And doctors, in examining certain cases, they become very puzzled by those cases, because there have been people in hospitals dying. Their heart is deteriorating, their body is deteriorating, and dissolution is about to take place. And they test them organically. There's no disease. There's nothing wrong, except they're dying. And they've come up with only one conclusion about it. The person lost their will to live. They had no more purpose for life. And when they had lost purpose for living, they simply died. Now, a man simply must have purpose. But the problem is with man, that for the most part, because of his upbringing, because of his background, He does not have the right purpose. He has a wrong purpose. And we'll make definitions of that. Now let's take first of all and define the idea of purpose. Purpose is that determined goal within myself to which I am moving with certainty. It is something that I see as supremely important. That upon which I fix my desire, my aim, my life. It's that which gives me motivation because it's supreme value. I hold it before me, and I say, that is worth having, that is worth attaining, and that's the only thing in life that has supreme value for me. And if that is so, it motivates me to rise up from the point where I am, no matter how far I am from that purpose, and I start moving with certainty toward that goal. Now... Purpose. What is it that within me motivates me? Many times we can tell what our purpose is by simply asking ourselves, what is it that motivates us? Well, for most of us, the purpose that we have is not what it should be. Now, there are two kinds of purposes that we can have. Think about it for a minute. There is the man-centered purpose, where the purpose of my living is myself, Or there is the opposite to that, the God-centered purpose. Being born into this world, the Bible tells us we're born in sin and iniquity that our mothers conceive us. We are raised in a sinful world. The Bible tells us we're raised in the lap of the wicked one. The Satan is the God of this world. He has literally perverted our minds and turned our minds inward in exactly the same way that his mind is turned inward. Now once, this glorious being, Satan, whose name originally was Lucifer, son of the morning, the light bearer, he was once created to glorify God. He was once created to lead the praise of the whole universe. He was once created to do wonderful and marvelous things. But somewhere along the line, something happened to him. And he no longer became interested in doing the thing he was created for. But at one point in his existence, he said, I will be like God. I will ascend above the Most High. I will put my throne on the sides of the North. In other words, he thought he would literally displace God. Now, you see, what he really did is said that God is no longer my purpose, that my purpose is myself, my desires, My wants, my ambitions, my needs. And the minute that he did that, he no longer was the light bearer, but darkness settled upon him. It said iniquity was discovered in him, and he was cast out of heaven and fell down, down, down. That's the vision that the Lord Jesus. He said, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now we find this also in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was a great king. But all kings, the Bible tells us, and all rulers are appointed by God to do a certain work. Whether that work be good or bad, and whether they have to be judged, it is God which allows them to come to a place of power. And Nebuchadnezzar was raised up by God. And he was given might and dominion and power, but he did not give the glory to God. Nebuchadnezzar was the supreme, self-centered individual. One day he had a dream in which essentially the interpretation was that he was to be taken from his place of authority. And Daniel wisely counseled him. He said, King, let my counsel be pleasing to you. He said, Break off your sins by righteousness. It may be that there will be a prolonging of the tranquility of your days. But Nebuchadnezzar could not hear that. And we find out at some point, now this is Nebuchadnezzar reflecting back later, This is Daniel, the fourth chapter and the 30th verse, said 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, do you see his purpose for living was totally to demonstrate what he considered his might, his power his glory, his wonder, his splendor. And he lost it all for seven years until he realized that it was not his might, his power, his glory, his splendor, but that God was God, and he was merely a man who depended on God for his daily existence. In the New Testament, one of the Herods stood up and made a great oration. And the people said, It's the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod received this kind of a praise instead of immediately saying, no, I am only a man and not God. But the Bible says because he did not do this, God slew him and he fell down and he was eaten up of worms. See, the Bible says in another place, my glory, this is God speaking, I will not give to another. Now, I say once again, man's purpose is either man-centered Or it can be God-centered, and it should be God-centered. Now, if it is God-centered, then the man is turned outside of himself, and his attention focuses on God, and his priorities become not himself, but God's purpose, God's direction, God's aim, God's glory, God's mind, God's heart. And he begins to speak this way. What does God want? What is right for me to do? Why am I created? What is the purpose of my life? I want to serve. And he begins to talk about serving instead of being served. He begins to speak about giving instead of saying, who will give to me? He begins to speak about things like higher kinds of living instead of thinking about the baser kinds of living. Because he's no longer trying to serve his flesh He's trying to worship God in spirit and in truth. And a whole transformation takes place when he rightly gets the purpose down. Now then, let's look at our next point. I want to examine the man-centered purpose. Now, when a man is functional at all, it is because he has a purpose. And in this world, the time we have come into it, until the time we find the Lord Jesus as our personal Savior, man does have a purpose. And that purpose will differ. That is, if the man expressed it in words, it would be different. Each man would say, well, this is my purpose. and Another would say, well, this is my purpose, and they would be different. But essentially, all purposes are reduced down to just simply two purposes. One is man-centered, the other is God-centered. Now let me define the man-centered purpose. It is when a man commits his will to the gratification of his own desires. doesn't matter what the desires are. It all has essentially the same purpose. I purpose to commit my whole life to gratifying my personal desires. Now, interestingly enough, that may take a completely outward different form and one may be completely radical to the other. For instance, one man may strive all of his life to avoid pain, because that's what gratifies his personal desires. Yet there are some people, twisted personalities to be sure, but they desire to suffer pain. And so literally, they are out trying to bring pain upon themselves, so they get themselves into all kinds of strange situations where they get beat up many of them are highly accident prone or others will get themselves into a certain situation where they torment and torture themselves and yet it's exactly the same purpose they have committed their wills to gratifying their own personal desires and so no matter what the outward appearance is it's always the same basic purpose my will is committed to gratifying my own personal desires now The contrast to that is the God-centered purpose, where my will is also once again committed, but not to gratifying my own personal desires, but to gratifying God's desires. I say, I am here for a purpose, and that purpose is that I will give myself to gratifying God's desires. There are things that He wants, things that He says are right, things that He says I should be doing, and this is what I will now give myself to. See, one is turned outward to God, the other is turned inward toward myself. All right. A man-centered purpose, another word for it would be selfishness, self-directed purposing. I want what I want. It is always couched in terms of, you must give me. I have a right to. I demand that you, my needs must be, it is always in terms of I, and the ego really means, it's another word for I, isn't it? All right. Now, I am constantly drawing attention. I'm constantly making demands on people to meet my personal needs. I'm drawing people continually toward myself and saying, you owe me something. I am the most important person in the whole universe, and therefore you should give to me you should meet my needs, and I will only reciprocate as it is necessary to gratify my need to be generous, then I'll reciprocate. I'll say, look how generous and how good I am. Isn't this a wonderful thing that I'm doing? Or, I will respond to you only as you happen to meet my personal needs. If you don't meet my needs, or you're working against my needs, well, nothing to do with you at all. But now let's contrast that to the selflessness of God. God gave his only begotten Son, that whoso believes on him should never perish but have everlasting life. God did not come to his, quote, friends. He came to those who were his enemies and those who hated him, and he gave himself equally for them, not only for those who worshipped him, but for those who despised him and cursed him, and yet he gave himself fully and freely for all of them. One side, selflessness, not in turn but outturned. The other one, man-centered, totally interned toward itself. Now what then is the essence of sin? The essence of sin is not an action at all. It's not murdering. It's not robbing banks. It's not beating people up. It's not putting people down. All of those could be said to be actions resulting from sin, but they are not sin. All sin is summed up in this one word, selfish living. I have determined to gratify my own needs. I have literally made myself God. I have written my own laws for living, and I expect other people to submit themselves to me so those laws of my personal living will be carried out. All sin, let me repeat, can be summed up in this one word. It's self-centered living. Now, what then is required? What is the process of conversion? The Bible talks about being converted. talks about Peter being converted. When he was on this earth before he was converted, the Lord, living selflessly, said, I must go to the cross. I must give my life for humanity. I must do my Father's will. Peter, being self-centered and self-directed, loved the Lord personally, wanted the Lord to remain with him, and he took the Lord and began to shake him and said, this is not going to be so to you, Lord. You're not going to go to that cross. You see, it didn't matter to Peter that 10 million or 10 billion people would be lost. That was no concern to him, as long as he personally would have the Lord for himself. Whereas on the other hand, the Lord... Realized that his own life was not the important thing, or that Peter's immediate gratification was not the important thing, but to do the Father's will was the important thing. And the result of it was the Lord lives forever. Peter has been born again and converted. Now, what happened in Peter's life? Jesus at that point spoke to him. He said, Peter, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Now, he has no strength to the brethren then. He went off at one point before he was converted, and he said, I go fishing, and they went fishing with him, and he just did all kinds of things he got into. But later on, he was soundly converted when Peter's self-centered living stopped, and he realized the only reason for living was to turn out of himself toward the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, what you want is important, not what I want is important. And the minute he could say what the Lord said in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the Lord was pressured on every hand by the terrible things that were coming down on him, he said, God, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Now that was the Lord's orientation. Now Peter, at some later point, would be able to completely convert himself and say, Lord, not my will be done, no longer Peter's will, but your will be done, O Lord. And when he made that kind of a change, that's what the Bible means about conversion. And the basis of all righteous action, the basis of all good action that's acceptable to God, is based on that one thing of a man being converted. So he's no longer gratifying himself, but his will is set to gratify God if I were to expand on this point I would have to say that every man within his own heart once I explain what the purpose of God truly is would be very quickly able to determine if his will was committed to God's purpose or if his will was committed to some lesser purpose now if it's committed to a lesser purpose it can only be a self-centered purpose there's no room in between it isn't like well I won't commit myself Exactly to the purpose of God, but I will choose still a good purpose, but not quite so high a purpose. There's the distinction between heaven and hell in those two concepts. If we do not commit ourselves to the purpose of God, there is nothing left to commit ourselves to except a self-centered purpose. We have no in-between ground. That's why a religious frenzy or a religious fervor or religious activity can really be very disguised self-centered living because now we're able to salve our conscience and we'll say well i'm not doing all i should do but see i'm doing this and i'm doing this and i'm doing this and we keep salving our conscience but that's exactly the same kind of thing that a man will do when he's not living as he should be he's not serving god but he's still arguing that he's not too bad because he pays his bills, and he's a good neighbor, and he's a decent father, and he tries to do right, and he hopes that God will overlook the fact that he's not received the Lord Jesus as his personal Savior. And there can be no salvation with that. Now, the same thing is true. The man must be utterly centered on the purpose of God. And we've deliberately, at this point, left off what that purpose is, just so our minds, as we hear the teaching, will begin to ask the question, What then is the purpose of God? I want to hear what the purpose of God is. I say that once we hear it, then our minds can immediately look inside and discern whether we truly are committed to that purpose or not. It becomes very evident and very clear. But I think we need to build up some ideas here that that concept of the purpose is absolutely essential to give our lives direction for whatever our purpose is. That will determine the direction our lives will go in. Later on in the study, I believe we'll give some examples of those having the wrong purpose and the terrible things that have come in their lives, things that they've done even in the name of the Lord, which have been very destructive to the kingdom of God simply because they had the wrong purpose. Now we've got a point to consider here. We've already covered, in a sense, the God-centered purpose is the mark of the converted. It is the basis of all righteous behavior. There can be no real usefulness to God or our fellow man or to ourselves without the right purpose. Now, I simply have to make this statement a blanket statement. It will be explained later. But there can be no real usefulness. To God. No real usefulness to our fellow man or to ourselves as long as we have a self-centered purpose. We will constantly take the glory of God and we will pull it down and we'll take the glory for ourselves. If we do anything in which God has blessed us and something good happens in another person's life, we will try to get the person to turn their eyes away from God and turn it upon ourselves so that we will receive the honor and the credit for that particular thing. We're not even a value to ourselves if we have the wrong purpose, because we're constantly striving to have our personal needs met. And the Bible makes it clear that the eye is never filled with seeing, and the ear is never filled with hearing. And we might say the feelings are never filled with feeling. People strive after feelings, only to find that after a little bit of time, that feeling no longer has a thrill for them, and they need greater feelings or other feelings or more feelings. And they constantly are striving for more things to see, more things to hear, more things to feel, more things to do. And they become utterly more and more contained within themselves. Now, there must be no compromise with this idea. We are utterly self-centered or we become utterly God-centered. But there's no root in between. Now, let me state further. You can never really know the will of God for your life without knowing his purpose. And that should be evident from all that we've said up to now. There is no way of knowing God's will for your life. What are you to do individually? What reason have you come into this world? Why have you been born? God had a purpose for your life. And he's planted within you gifts, talents, abilities, skills, that all of those are meant by God to come forth at the right moment, and do something in this world. You're meant, when your life is finished on this earth, whether you live 50 years or 70 years or 10 years, it doesn't make any difference, but you're meant to carry out something on this earth, and you should be able, at the end of that life, you should be able to say, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. And henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Or you ought to be able to say, like Paul, that I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision, that I have finished out the life which God has given me to live. Paul said in another place, I have been a witness to every creature under heaven whereunto I was sent. Now, these men knew that they finished God's purpose in their life. They knew that they were in the will of God, and they knew when their life was over that they lived a good life. And yet I can tell you, Without the right purpose in your life, you'll never even know where to begin because you have no sense of direction at all. But once the purpose is right, then it does not take very much understanding for you to hit upon exactly the kind of steps you should take to attain to that purpose. Now, how can we know the purpose of God? Well, first of all, we're going to have to understand something. That the Bible says this Mind of ours. Now, remember, we're not talking here about the brain or the intellectual capacity. We're talking about the way the mind has been developed in the world. And the Bible calls it the carnal mind because it's been shaped by the God of this world, Satan. The Bible says the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. And he has very carefully, shrewdly, and calculatedly programmed it to think certain ways, and those ways are exactly contrary to God's ways. Satan has taught man to think of himself first, last, and always. I, me, my, and mine. Those are our main words that we use. Satan has taught us many definitions of words that we will find in the Holy Scripture, but his definitions are always almost 180 degrees opposite to the truth of what is revealed in the Word of God. So our minds then are centered in a certain way, and the Bible calls this a carnal mind, because it thinks of life and the world and future and past in certain ways that are contrary to what God is speaking of. When we come to dealing with knowing the purpose of God, we can never depend on our human mind, because it's all twisted up, We can never depend on our human mind finding out that purpose. We need to go to a source which is clear, which never changes, which doesn't get confused. We need, in other words, a revelation. We need something to tell us what that purpose is. And, of course, the only one that we can go to is God himself. He must reveal to us. Satan is not going to reveal to us the purpose. The fallen angels and demonic spirits which are constantly warring against our minds are not going to reveal to us the purpose because they're interested in confusing and shrouding that purpose. They don't want you to know the purpose. And our own minds could never reveal it, no more so than the fact that we could pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We simply cannot do it. We're locked in to that kind of thinking. So it takes then a breakthrough, a revelation, for us to find out what that purpose is. So the revelation first comes by the Holy Spirit coming to us in power and opening the eyes of our understanding that there is someone called Jesus who is Lord and God, and that he came to this world 2,000 years ago in the form of a man, took upon himself our sins, died on the cross, raised again the third day, is now set at the right hand of the Eternal Father, and that if we believe on him, we shall be saved. And that is not a thing the human mind can know naturally. We simply have to have it revealed by the Word of God that comes to us, and then the Holy Spirit makes the Word of God come alive, and we know that it's true, and we believe it. And believing it, we act upon it, and we pass from death unto life. Well, in exactly the same way, the human mind is not able to know the purpose of God. We now know that we're saved, but now, if left to ourselves we would, as saved people, merely fall right back to doing the same things, maybe less viciously so, but we would still fall right back into the same kind of behavior. And we see this in the Bible in many, many cases. No, we need once again a revelation, something imparted to us by God, which will say, this is the purpose for which you have been born. This is the purpose for which you have been saved. This is the purpose for which you exist. And I need that kind of a revelation, and all of us need that kind of a revelation. Now, where do I find it? Well, I find it, first of all, in the Word of God. And I find it by saying, Lord, teach me your purpose. Hopefully, there will always be good teachers who can take it for you, because maybe you might have to search much through the Word of God to find it, although it's throughout the Word of God, everywhere. But good teachers could take it, but if you search for it, you'd find it, because the Bible says in the day that you search for him with your whole heart, you will be found. See. So now we go to the word of God and we say, Lord, give me your purpose. And then we pray at the same time that in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will make that purpose, that part of the word, live for us. Now, if we take that particular frame of mind that we really want to know God's purpose, and we come and we say, Heavenly Father, teach me, the Bible says if you ask God for food he won't give you a stone if you ask him for something good he won't give you something bad and if you want to know god's purpose then god will reveal to you his purpose for you and fortunately he's revealed it in the word of god quite clearly for all of us and that purpose is simply this that god has determined and i don't wish to go into too much explanation at this point but god has determined it's in his heart it's right that it should be so that all the creation should properly worship and glorify Him. And everything that He's created and everything that He's made has this same purpose in glorifying Him. When we talked a while back about the plants, and we say that people who are ones that deny that a God exists, they begin to search out a plant. Some worthless weed, and say, let's examine this and see what it's like. And they look at it on the outside, and they say, there's some interesting things there, but let's look at it more closely. Let's scrape it a little bit and see if we can look at the cells. And they look at the cells, and they see something marvelous there, and they say, we never knew it was like this. And then they break open the cells, and they find something more there, and then they see how the cells work, and they say, this is marvelous work. And the more they search it and study it, the more they're utterly amazed. And the more they look at it, the more things there are to look at. So the further they go into it, it just expands and expands. They say, this is marvelous beyond comprehension. How can these things be? That's just one plant. Then you take an animal, or an insect, or the stars. No wonder the book of Romans rightly says that by the things that are made, men know even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. See, by the things that are seen, you just look at it, and it's just endless, just searching out of the glorious, wonderful things that God has created for man to look at and marvel and to simply raise their hands in adoration and say, you're God, and to you belongs the glory. We give you glory. You're to be worshipped and praised and honored and to fall down before him and worship him. Now, this kind of understanding is not Something that sets well with a carnal mind. The carnal mind, always wishing to have glory for itself, is very angry when anyone else gets glory for themselves. If we see someone else exalted, and we are not exalted, if we have a carnal mind, we become angry. Why did they get exalted? Why was not I the one who received this praise? I don't like that kind of behavior. But when we're exalted and praised, we say, oh, this is right and this is good that I should be exalted and praised because I am that kind of person. Now it's an interesting thing when we say that it is God who should be glorified because He is God. He has always existed. It is right that He should be honored and glorified. The creation that He's made should literally raise His hands, speaking of man, should literally raise His hands toward God and worship Him. The carnal mind immediately reacts and says, oh, is God stuck on himself, or what kind of a thing is this, that God should want glory, and so why doesn't he get? And yet we have to learn as humans that what God tells us is right is right. Now, I've learned long ago that when I submit myself to the purpose of God truly, when I simply realize that it is right and good and noble perfect for me to give God glory, something happens within me. My whole being begins to turn outward. I'm no longer concerned with myself and my needs and my desires and my aims and my purposes, but I become concerned with the only real purpose that matters, that God shall be glorified, that he shall be honored, that he shall be uplifted, that he shall be praised, that he shall be worshipped. And something happens within me All of the confusion begins to dissipate. All of the endless struggle, the manipulation to get people to praise me endlessly begins to dissipate. All of the desire to have people under my power begins to dissipate. And all you simply want to do is raise them up and up and up so they too can come to a revelation of the purpose of God in their lives and begin to move in that purpose, the freedom of the sons of God. See, that purpose is the very central core of any kind of freedom, any kind of satisfaction, any kind of joy, any kind of meaning, any kind of anything. Depends totally on us coming to that place of saying, I'm laying aside what my carnal mind tells me, always striving for my own glory, and I'm going to lay that aside completely, and I'm going to utterly give glory to God. That's where it belongs. Now we come to a unique thing, in this church age, that the eternal Father God has determined that His Son Jesus, who has come to this earth, took upon Himself the form of a man, suffered and died on the cross that we might be saved, that He's done such a meritorious and wonderful work, He's determined that every man and every woman, every creature, by giving glory to Jesus, That shall be the unique means in this church age by which glory shall be given to God the Father. Yes, we can praise the eternal Father. That's right and that's good. But it says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in this unique church age, when we exalt the name of Jesus, when we tell his story, when we do his work, when we bow our knees to Him and worship Him and praise Him and honor Him and glorify Him, in doing that, we are giving glory to God. And that act of worship, that act of praise, that surrender of my will, no longer committed to gratifying myself, but now committed to exalting Jesus, now committed to gratifying the needs of the Eternal Father, it completely changes me inside to where my life becomes one of right living and right acting and right thinking instead of selfish living, selfish acting and selfish thinking.